thanks everyone for coming along tonight. Um, I, I, uh, I'm not going to show that many pictures that are up in the exhibition, um, and the reason being that uh, they're up in the exhibition, um, and I, I wouldn't want to just repeat myself. Um, so uh, what I thought would be interesting about this talk, trying to do with this talk, is almost showing you the pictures that didn't get uh, put into the exhibition. And the reason being is because um, I think when, you, when you're working on an exhibition, the, the things that you're aspiring to achieve in the exhibition are pretty problematic, really, insofar as you're trying to do something really slick and polished and uh, coherent um, that is about a subject that I found to be anything but that. Um, I have to say that uh, in uh, photographing uh, poverty is full of uh, problems. I mean, even defining poverty was pretty difficult to do. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to show you a bit about... I'm going to try and sort of deconstruct how I, I produced the final work. Um, and I'm going to start with a little text that I've written, and then I'll show you some uh, images. This is the cover of the uh, Global Civil Society yearbook that was produced this year, and this is an image that um, I took um, for it. And I'm not saying this because I'm showing off. I'm saying it because I'm going to come back to uh, it later on. But I thought it'd be a nice way to start visually. So. Um, I'm going to start with the text here, so it's going to be a little bit formal in my presentation. Okay. Um, working on this commission forced me to go on an, on an excursion into places I wouldn't otherwise have gone to. I spent time with people I would have passed in the street without much empathy. I listened to their life stories and in, some, and in small ways did what I could to help them. But to do all this knowing that at the end of it, you have to come out with a coherent, visually compelling story must have influenced the quality and purpose of my contact with them. It's not the first project I've worked on in areas considered to be deprived, but it is the first where I had room to raise these questions rather than to provide only answers. The longer I work as a documentary photographer, the more interested I become in what exactly it is I'm doing. At first, I thought my work would play a critical role in commenting on society. Then, when the open uh, when, then when the open-ended nature of photographs meant one person's critique was another's wall decoration, I thought it could instead play a historical role, giving future generations insight into how we lived. But now, with photography so prevalent and with cameras everywhere, my own role in making history seems quite unlikely. I have to ask myself then, what is a documentary photographer? Who do I serve? Do I serve the subjects of my pictures? The people who are paying me to take pictures? Or am I in it purely for myself? With a project like this, I think the terms of the work are already set by making explicit the connection between poverty and photography. The two are long-time companions. Whether it's clichés meant to elicit compassion and allude to the dignity of the poor, or stolen shots of homeless bodies in doorways, nothing is quite so photogenic and visually dramatic as squalor. But what purpose do these images serve? Is the photographer simply feeding their own and our own voyeuristic hunger for these images? Or do they really believe their work will have consequences that will help put an end to the subject's misery? I propose that for the voyeur, and in photography we are many, squalor and misery are often far too alluring and seductive to not photograph. 
there is an almost unbreakable tie between the medium and its favourite subject, a fascination which is protected by the detachment of peering through a viewfinder. Now, when I started this project, obviously I had to... Uh, you, you have to find a way in to the subject, and there are many ways in, but uh, one of the best is organisations that work with uh, in the field of poverty. Um, but when I, when I described to the organisations that I was working on a commission about poverty, it put many people off. Uh, they didn't like to think of those that they worked with as being poor, nor did they think that the people themselves would like to think of themselves as poor. So in approaching organisations, my emphasis on poverty shifted to describing economic divisions that could be seen all around Hackney. And put in those terms, without using the word poor or poverty, a lot more doors opened. But the only real breakthrough came when the London Coalition Against Poverty returned my calls and emails. So uh, I guess having poverty in the name of the organisation immediately sort of ruled out that they, uh, it was a subject they were uncomfortable with. Now, the, the coalition is a dedicated group of activists defending the rights of families and individuals caught in London's housing trap. They were especially keen to draw attention to the plight of families caught in Alexander Court, a temporary hostel for homeless individuals and families at the heart of Stoke Newington. The state of disrepair and neglect to the building and its facilities was so serious and in some instances quite dangerous. LCAP, that's the uh, acronym for the coalition, knew several families who would be very keen to talk to anyone interested in representing their plight. When I arrived at the hostel as a photographer, they were keen for me to photograph evidence of the neglect inside the building. And uh, in, in, in a way, that was one of the most interesting aspects of the project, which happened very soon, so I had a lot of time afterwards to continue working, but... Um, when I arrived at the hostel, um, the people the people were not particularly interested in what I, in what my project were. They were really only interested in me using photography to document evidence of um, council neglect in uh, in the building. Um, so, for example, these images. Oh yeah, sorry. Can we dim the lights? Cheers. So these images really uh, are not particularly, um, what's the word, uh, metaphoric in any way, as far as I can see. They're much more just about hard evidence that the families would, would uh, I, I'd get prints made for the families and they would give them to solicitors that were representing them uh, in challenging the council so that they wouldn't face eviction. Um, but I, I, I'll come on to that in a bit. But so for example this is a, a bed um, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> a bedstead um, that uh, has the you know the uh, crowns missing and uh, the children would cut themselves uh, on there and this is the, this is the uh, the state of the, the place that these families would move into and these were uh, for the most part homeless um, families and this was temporary accommodation this is Tina pointing to a, a light bulb out of which water would pour when it was raining. This is a gas tap 
by the bed. It's an intercom. It doesn't work. I can't remember what this is. I just love the fact that I've no idea what it is, but it was useful in some way. This is the toilet. And this is the rent bill, the rent and housing benefit form. Now, the real story here is that these homeless families have to pay £344 a week uh, for uh, one-bedroom accommodation. And um, obviously, where, where possible, that would be reclaimed through housing benefit. Uh, but because the Hackney Council administers the benefit as well as uh, charging the rent, it can afford to um, charge quite an extortionate fee. Now, the furthest right column there, you can see that uh, no HB is housing benefit, so no housing benefit paid for that week. Um, and then it's paid, and then it's not paid, and then it's paid, and then not paid, and then paid for a few weeks, and then not paid. And a lot of these things come down to bureaucratic uh, anomalies. Um, so very, very soon, these families find themselves thousands and thousands of pounds in debt to the council. And um, you can imagine the stresses and strains on that. And I just uh, went on to Foxton's, which if you live in London, I imagine you know what that is. And for 350 a week, you can get some pretty decent accommodation. <laughs> Very nice. So um, the, uh, the families uh, are straight away in a trap, in a, a kind of benefit trap, but one with very real consequence, which is that they end up thousands of pounds in debt. Um, <coughs> these are more images. It's pointing to a plug socket that's kind of sliding up and down the wall. The kitchen. And this is the temporary accommodation services office, which is in the in the on the ground floor of the uh, building and uh, housing officers no longer speak to um, the residents face-to-face. Uh, -face. Well, they'll only speak to them through the grill. So the office has now been closed to its residents. Now, this is, um, this is uh, Vicky Laker, who is actually on the cover of the yearbook. And this is Vicky holding a pile of six months' worth of correspondence with Hackney Council, and many of the letters in there are about threatening her with eviction, uh, about sending bailiffs, uh, about taking her child away. Um, and um, what really shocked me actually was that Vicky was is a really is a was a fiercely uh, intelligent and sharp woman from Uganda for whom English wasn't her first language, but she would deal single-handedly with all the correspondence to back and forth with the council. Um, and it really reminded me of um, Franz Kafka's The Trial, where Joseph K is basically caught in this. He doesn't know why he's condemned, but he's on trial for something he doesn't know that he's committed. And there is no, he can't get an answer as to, there is no straight uh, way of understanding anything about his predicament. And Vicky, Vicky's story was very much like that, I felt. This is one letter from Hackney Council. I thought conceptually what might have been interesting is for me for this talk for me just to read this letter out on its own and not do anything else. 
because I felt that would probably convey more about the the trap that these people find themselves in than anything I could describe. So this basically this letter is basically telling Vicky that she's she's got to leave. She's got to get out. And there was there was nowhere for her to go to um, after this. And I think nobody has, uh, uh, the people I've spoken to uh, no longer know where Vicky is. And some people think that she had to go back to Uganda from wh from where she was a political refugee. Now, um, that was a case of um, my photographs being useful to the people, the residents fighting eviction um, and, and, and fighting the uh, massive amounts of debt that they accrued by being in the system. The, the London Coalition of, Against Poverty, part of the deal, in a sense, um, for them giving me access to Alexander Court was that I would supply them uh, with photographs as well in their campaign to sort of fight for the rights of uh, this disenfranchised. Um, but um, one thing that happened, uh, which is quite interesting, is one day I got a call from the coalition saying that they were going to go to the job centre in Hackney to demonstrate against the job centre because the job centre is wrapped up in the whole uh, benefits uh, claims system. So um, the job centre would send out, for example, letters, backdated letters with a deadline that would have passed the, the week preceding the claimant receiving the letter, if you know what I mean. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's surreal. But I, I saw many of these letters for myself. Um, and so the coalition would, for example, uh, arrange to do a, a kind of a direct action, which was to, to, to go to the job centre and make a case for speaking to the management so that they could try and sort this out because it was really affecting these people's lives dramatically. Um, and I was asked to come along because I was seen as an official photographer. I would give the protest legitimacy, uh, a form of legitimacy. And uh, they believed that the job centre would take it, thing, take it a lot more seriously if there was an official photographer present. And I should say as well, I was really impressed by the coalition, how, how they were organised and how uh, experienced they were and how knowing they were of being perceived as threatening or violent in any way or aggressive. So they went to enormous pains telling the 15 or 16 people that assembled to sort of keep, keep calm, never raise your voice, you know, power in numbers, let's get our request in and that, that's it, that'll be enough. But obviously as soon as we turned up there, I was there with my great big camera and the security guards, I mean I never knew there were security guards in job centres, but no there are at the doors. Um, like a nightclub, immediately kind of just grabbed my camera basically and stopped me from taking any pictures. So I, I, I was the only person in the protest singled out by the security uh, to be stopped. But obviously, because everybody's got cameras, all the activists, some of them like Japanese student volunteers, turned up with their own little cameras and they were just taking cameras quite happily without, you know, they didn't care that. I was the official photographer. Uh, so, um, sure enough, the police came. About, I think, eight uh, police officers arrived in, in body armour, um, having been called by the security guards at the job centre. 
and um, once we were that's me once we would had left the building I felt I should be free to be able to take photos again so I started just photographing um, and then the uh, police officers just grabbed me and uh, the activists immediately put themselves between me and the officers um, pushed me against the wall and served a section 44 uh, terrorism stop and search on me so uh, I had my bag searched, I was questioned I had my details checked um, and I just I was absolutely dumbfounded I was shocked and um, I happened to have my tape recorder uh, in my pocket um, recording because as part of this project we were kind of encouraged to record ambient sounds and I thought it would be interesting to do so. So I kind of had the uh, the whole stop and search kind of recorded and uh, the officer was quite surprised when he pulled out his tape recorder out of my pocket and he was on tape. But um, yeah, I, I was just amazed that uh, I, I would be the one to be singled out as as an official witness almost to this demonstration uh, that I should be the one to be stopped and searched and everything else um, now the later on the, uh, the, the activists, the coalition who as well as fighting for the rights of um, the, the disenfranchised and the homeless and, and, and so on one of their real causes was the gentrification of Hackney and that all sorts of things were going on uh, politically with um, shopkeepers uh, as well as residents being kind of forced out um, being served compulsory purchase order notices and they produced this booklet called Hackney Isn't Crap which is a walking tour of gentrification from Dalston to London Fields and it's called Hackney Isn't Crap because uh, Jules, Julian Pipe, the mayor of Hackney at a debate with London Coalition Against Poverty and uh, Open Dalston uh, activists accused this, these people of wanting to keep Hackney crap by not allowing Waitrose and um, big developers to kind of come in and, and develop there. So they took that uh, title for the name of the booklet and, and the coalition really wanted to use some of my pictures in the booklet. And again, this was uh, something that I was really, it was kind of a nice, another way of being useful that I that I hadn't envisaged and I really like the fact that it was photocopied, it was quite a raw booklet um, and that whoever designed it didn't care about squashing my images up which for a photographer is pretty heartbreaking but I quite like the fact that they've just like, squashed them up uh, yeah so um, obviously once, once I'd I'd done all that, I still felt like um, I, I still had this body of work to produce, right? So it was all very well helping all these people to uh, with my photographs, but I still had to produce an exhibition at the end of it all. And uh, one of the things that uh, I do a lot of work as documentary photographer is kind of producing picture stories or uh, photographs that might work in an exhibition context or in publications or editorially. And, um, whoops, sorry. So there's this aspect of the, my role being one of an interpreter almost. So I would listen to all the stories and I would do all my research about demographics and about poverty and statistics in Hackney and personal accounts. And then I would, I myself would wander around Hackney and come across things that I felt were really symbolic 
in one way or another of the things that I was hearing. And so I would go out and produce these photographs, which are kind of, they never made the edit, um, which I think is quite interesting in some ways. But these are little, little documents of my wanderings, if you like, around Hackney. Now, um, one of the real sort of uh, uh, fictions I think about photography is that it has anything to do with truth. I think I, I, I don't. I'm, I don't particularly think it does. I think it's. Uh, I think you're creating a fiction when you're producing photographs. None more so than when you're placing photographs next to each other sequentially. Um, I mean, straight away there, I feel like I'm manipulating the. Uh, the meaning, although I have to say what I love about pairing images up is that it almost, to me, seems to free individual images from themselves so that they, they, they really become, they start to have a, a meaning beyond what's in the individual frame as soon as they start being paired up with um, other images. So of the previous images that I just showed you individually, this was just a, a quick edit I did uh, for tonight's presentation showing how these images suddenly start to take on quite a, a, an interesting meaning in relationship to each other. Um, okay, so um, coming from Manchester, which is where I live, um, I would arrive in London Euston uh, uh, at the train station, and um, every time I'd come down, um, I was amazed at how bombarded with messages I would be, uh, and how London, especially compared to Manchester, I mean Manchester's a fraction of the size of London, um, and probably not anywhere near as commercially viable to advertisers, but uh, coming, coming, arriving in London, I, I was in, amazed at how, how many message, messages I'd be bombarded with. And as a photographer, obviously the, these messages are not particularly photogenic, um, but what I started to do is instead of ignoring them I would I started to photograph the actual <coughs> messages and then isolate them later on in Photoshop and remove the slogans from any other context uh, that was meant to uh, to anchor them in the adverts <coughs> and I found that on their own these slogans became really interesting that um, that they may be, they alluded to the demographic that they were being aimed at. And it, it, I felt that you, it told you something about the way a city speaks to its citizens, depending on uh, maybe the, the, the types of incomes they have, those residents might have. And in fact, um, one thing I did, but I didn't include in the end, was I went on the Clearwater uh, website. You know Clearwater, they do the uh, Clear Channel. No, was it Water Channel? What are they called? <laughs> Clear water, clear channel. clear channel. That's it. Thanks. Um, and on Clear Channel, you can, you can, you can locate a billboard, and Clear Channel will have done all their research on who is passing in that area. So what income uh, group they're from, um, what age group they are, what kind of occupation they're likely to be in. And I just found that really interesting. There's this kind of hidden world that we don't really, we just all we see at the end of it is these slogans, but behind it is a very targeted 
very precise uh, communication to a particular demographic. And then, of course, there's graffiti. And I found that the graffiti was really interesting for exactly the same reasons, that the graffiti came from a maybe a very different place. Um, it wasn't so much about selling, it was more about protesting. And uh, again, I found that quite interesting. And I did the same thing, which was to photograph the graffiti and then isolate it. And this is one of my favourites. Because uh, when you're working on a project like this, it's all consuming and you're thinking about it all the time and you start going a little bit crazy. Uh, but it's great because you start making connections between things that you might not otherwise. And I really like the idea that, uh, I found it really um, uh, relevant that the idea of regeneration is, I think, uh, from, from what I've seen and experienced, a lot to do with washing dirt away, um, which is kind of getting rid of a certain aesthetic, getting rid of a certain smell, getting rid of something and replacing it with something with the idea of something that's beautiful, something that's kind of slick. And I loved that, that you could take that idea about regeneration and apply it to shampoo. <laughs> so um, something that I then did, armed with all this kind of material, was starting layering, trying to layer uh, things over one another. So <coughs> applying these slogans to images that I'd shot walking around Hackney. So uh, what I did for the exhibition was to try and free up as much of the interpretation as possible. Um, I produced two slideshows that would run at separate lengths the reason, and that's what that's what's in the exhibition. So the idea is that uh, they don't start off at the same time and end at the same time. That each time they run, each uh, the, the pairings of images and slogans would be different. Um, so this here is just a forty-second snapshot. I mean, I did it very quickly, without thinking of the associations too much. Okay, so that's that. Now, putting this presentation together, I personally, I think one of the real unspoken issues about documentary photography and poverty, actually, is, sorry, I'm going to have to rifle through these, is the market. That's to say that these images, aside from any value they have to the people that are, that are in the pictures, have a market value. Um, that's to say they can be bought and sold like commodities. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, so, for example, one of the one of the uh, works that really inspired me, whoops, for this project was a, a series called American Night, which is by a photographer called Paul Graham. Who is a big name in the in art photography? Huge name, and uh, he produced a series in America, very much about the division, economic divisions, the rich and the poor. And so, this is a print that's for sale at a New York gallery and uh, 
London Gallery as well. It's the Anthony Reynolds Gallery. And the, the print can be yours for $35,000 plus that, which I found quite interesting. I actually asked how much it would be and he got back in touch, Anthony Reynolds, with, a, with two sentences saying it's the last one left. It's $35,000 plus VAT, if applicable. Uh, let me know if you want it. All the best, Anthony. And this is Alamy. So this is a picture library online, um, which is kind of uh, lower end of the market, if you like, in terms of picture libraries. And this is a homeless man. Uh, there's no model release, no property to release. Homel homeless man, sleeping rough, London, England, UK. And to use that image on the front cover of the yearbook, the LSE's yearbook, would cost £355 for three years worldwide, up to 5,000 copies, all of that. And just to go back to the very first image of the cover, I think that's quite interesting that that fee, that fee would cover a week's a week of Vicky Laker's rent, but it, you know it, it kind of goes back to the question of for whom for who are these images being produced, and um, I think that concludes that the talk really. I think. <laughs> Sequentially putting this presentation together, what I found while I was putting it together is that I was get, I was effectively getting further and further away from the su actual subject of the photographs. So you're starting out with something really specific, which is evidence about that it that has a very real you know use that that can actually help these people's case, and then 20 minutes later, I'm talking about interpretation and kind of connections between images, something that's quite abstract compared to the actual real use. So I think, I don't know, I think being, being, a, being a documentary, making it as a documentary photographer now, I think, you know, the market is pretty ruthless. It's hard to make it as a documentary photographer. You have to, you know, a lot of it is about packaging 
and I wonder how just how detached the relationship between documentary and activism has become. I think it's become really detached, and it's more now about kind of um, what's the word? Well, sort of a form of entertainment in some ways. Um, or certainly, you see an awful lot of cliches revisited over and over and over again. And if you type poverty, London, in many of the image libraries, you will see the same old images over and over and over again. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really want to do that. I mean, I did it to some extent because it's so irresistible to do. But um, I don't know. I, I, I think... You know, if you if you're going to be useful to activists, say, then your intention isn't going to be to put up exhibitions necessarily, or to or to get your work published in photography magazines. That's what I think. Does that answer your question? That's a good question. Um, I think Hackney is home to a very large ethnic minority population, but I, staggeringly, I found when I would look at the pictures I'd taken um, that yeah, there was a very high number of black uh, blacks in my images. I was really shocked, actually. Um, and I mean, certainly in Alexander Court, it was a by far predominantly black population there, as were the housing managers, actually, uh, of the building. Um, but I think it may well be um, something that I encountered in the areas that I was working in, yeah. It, I didn't seek it, I certainly didn't seek it, um, and it was pointed out to me several times by people who would help me in the editing process that that was the case, but yeah, so I was aware of it. What happened? Well, we got into a sort of long discussion between me and this police officer about the right to protest and about because um, they didn't have a permit to protest, right? So that's that was the police's version that they didn't have a permit, therefore it was unlawful. When I asked them, you know, why why do you need why do you feel the need to be so heavy-handed? They said, well, because we don't know that you're, you you know you might all be armed as far as we're concerned and um, um, and then we got into a really weird discussion about what we'd about who knew more than the other so about history strangely enough because I started talking about civil rights and what where would we have ever got to with civil rights if we needed a permit to protest right 
and he said, "Well, I think I know more about you. I I I was an, I was a, a, a I was an English teacher at a primary school, what? right? What did you do?" That was his statement. <laughs> I know, weird, weird, but. That's, but <laughs> and you don't need a permit to uh, protest under a certain number of people. Certainly not fifteen as far as I know. Okay. <laughs> um and um and I and I said, "Well, I studied sociology, so you know." take that at university <laughs> and uh, and he said and he said well that's not a very useful degree though is it <laughs> at least I did something useful uh, and so, um, so I mean what do you say to that you know I was done he got me on that one so so I went home and typed everything up typed it was a good like 20 minute conversation we had typed the whole conversation up and then two weeks later, dropped the hard disk. It was on, and lost it all. So uh, there was more to the conversation. It was surreal, yeah. And in the end, they just let me go, obviously, after 20 minutes, but uh, the activists had told me, if you do get stopped and so apparently you, you don't have to give your name and address. You, 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 can be, you, you have the right not to. Um, but I was so intimidated and panicked and everything that I did, and thankfully they didn't take my DNA, but um yeah, that's that's how it ended. Oh yeah, I was gonna ask a technical question. Um did you take did you get the composition of exposure like you take loads of pictures or just take one and go that'll do and I'll fiddle around later? Uh especially those early those early ones look they look quite snapshotty. You know the the first sequence yeah. in the hospital. Yeah, I mean sometimes they're underexposed. Sometimes overexposed. Sometimes you get it just right. Generally, you try and get it right. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all digital. Yeah. No, digital. Yeah. I think I shot. Uh, oh, I'm not even going to say the number. Cause it's, yeah, it's not relevant. Certainly, I think uh, my work. Um, I would try. I would try to be political in some way. Which, by that, I mean to be, to have some form of critique. But I can't. I, I. I can't be confident enough to think that that's what my work does anymore. Just because when I've tried to be, and it, it isn't. I feel like this was something so local, so specific, that was useful. It was probably possibly the most political thing I've done, but not for the reasons that I would have previously thought um, yeah so I don't I don't really go into it thinking yeah I'm gonna be you know this is I'm an activist no <coughs> I, I, I can't 
the, the activists are so dedicated and so knowledgeable. I mean, it's really incredible to see how committed and passionate they are to the cause. I couldn't begin to use that label to describe myself just because it's, you know, I don't operate in that field. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was thrilled to be useful to them. And, you know, it was a really, I had a really profound con connection with them, I feel. But, you know, at the end of the day, I go back to Manchester and have to make a living in Manchester, you know, whereas they're fighting their battles here in London. And if I could help them in any way, then I did. Today. Today. <laughs> I think I. I think, like I said before, I think document the connection, the link between documentary and activism has been utterly. Uh, is, I think you have to look in non-photographic fields, because I think photography has become such a massive business such a massive industry and even art photography you know photographers are graduating from photography colleges looking to make a name for themselves in the photography world or the art world or the commercial photography world nobody's not many people not many students are leaving uh, college looking to make a name for themselves in political action through using photography but I think there's all sorts of reasons for that, namely that the whole idea of documentary photography has been pretty much smashed by conceptual, uh, you know, by all the problems associated with the recording of uh, and, and, and of, of the disenfranchised or of you know uh, trauma, all of those things. But um, who, there's a guy who did a book called The Graves. I can't remember his name, Magnum Guy, who, and Gilles Perez, yeah, that's right. And, uh, and it's just, there's some kind of classic cliches of, you know, compassion el eliciting images, but for the most part, they're just it's just evidence, Photogra black and white photographs, just evidence. And I feel that there isn't enough of that. I feel we, you know, we quite easily now, as documentary photographers, and I'm guilty of it, you know, I've got a picture of a dead pigeon in this exhibition. What the hell's a dead pigeon got to do with the story of poverty in London? You know, aesthetically, it's a lovely image and it really sets the mood, but what the hell has it got to do with any of these people's plight? First of all, I really question that it's their story, that they tell you their story. 
I think what gets totally underestimated, and uh, I know that um, it's it's very much an idea that uh, that's out there that that the story that people tell you is the one that you should really value and legitimise. But I think actually often, you know, they're not you're not being told the full story, and you know, people's lives are far more complicated than than uh, uh, one story might convey so there's a performance to it as well I think there's a performative aspect and so you're balancing all these things all the time so for example um, one of the things I felt that I maybe should have done with this presentation is just had the sound in the recordings of the interviews that I did with the different people because those interviews maybe played over some of the images may have been really powerful and effective but that's the device still you know that's still a device, and I think, I think Je Jessica Dimmock, who is it, the girl who did the um, uh, New York piece, her story, she she did this story about heroin addicts in London, in New York, and it was a story that she did over three years, and in the end, it was produced in this like almost Hollywood type story with a musical soundtrack, with you know very powerful. Uh, accounts by the people in the photographs um, and again you sort of that's a, that's a, all sorts of devices are being applied there so you know yes I use devices for this project but I, I was uncomfortable with it in some ways and that's why I wanted to deconstruct it with this and I think when you the, the stories to be honest Jay the stories are so complicated and they're to do with bureaucracy, they're to do with, you know, life histories, they're to do with so many complicated factors. I don't think you can do it justice unless you really dive in to those stories, which is maybe what I should have done. But I read that letter and my head was about to explode, you know, from the council, just because it's, it's so, it's a huge mass. First of all, I'm confused, right, as well. Um, 
I guess what I'm saying is with this project, right, you set out and you have this big idea about what you're going to end up with. Mm. And what I found actually was that I could be useful to certain people in ways that I hadn't thought about, mm. right? And those were seemed to be really quite directly political. They had direct consequences to these people's predicament. Do you, do you understand what, yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was one part of the project. Now, in a way, the question it ought to be, why didn't I show that in the exhibition? Yeah, exactly. Right. That's what, that's what my question is, I guess. Yeah, well, because... Uh, well, it's a great question, I think, because, first of all, you guys were involved with the edit. <laughs> <laughs> so there's issues there, which is... How interesting would it would an exhibition be? I, I remember actually when I when I presented to the panel, um, somebody said this is more of a conceptual art piece because I was showing nothing images. Do you know, you know what I mean? Like a broken bedstead. Evidence. I mean, what's how's that going to be interesting to our audience in a way? And one question is why wouldn't you have the broken bedstead uh, as the book cover? You know, why not? And I think the answer to that is, in a way, the answer to maybe why I chose. You know, at the end of the day, I'm trying to produce a body of work that will be seen, that will live a life amongst the photographic community. And however pretentious that might be, that's probably the reason why I wouldn't show just those pictures of evidence. But um, that's how strong that field is. You know, that's how strong the, the pull. When you're working as a photographer, your audience is, a lot of the time, other photographers in some ways, unfortunately, <laughs> isn't it? But I guess, if I can just take yeah. a step um, further, I guess maybe the question is, why would anyone commission an exhibition about photography if they don't want to cause change? Or what was the aim of commissioning
buying in is actually the is actually the thing that Nish was talking about. You know, you're reproducing the the, the, the ideas of a passive public as a marketized public, an individualized public, public of consumers. Exactly the things that you you want to be claiming that you're criticising. So, what would it be like to imagine that the public of the gallery is is a bit more radical, is a bit more criticised, is a bit more predisposed to effective action? Yeah, I think the question there about assumptions about who the audience is coming into the LSD, coming into mm -hmm. the nature of the public space, which um, you know I could predict uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, their, who they are, their makeup. There's always an issue about obviously exhibiting ones in the gallery. In fact, during the course of the evolution of the project, we've <coughs> evolved through discussions in the committee and with the artists involved. We were hoping to show it somewhere else, which is not in, in necessarily the gallery space. Um, but for obvious reasons, at least in this country or in this city, because our funding came from a, um, an organisation within the school, we did have to show it in the school. Um, but in future, we're looking at showing it um, elsewhere, um, in some of the artistic features, and possibly in a different sort of venue, i.e. not necessarily in a gallery venue. Uh, the reasons that um, we have to talk about in the future. Uh, Martin? Um, yeah, I think um, there is one way in which Expensive price and to provide funds for 
Mm, but nobody buys my pictures. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Your idea of you want to be, you want to be useful to them, is your own judgment. And maybe these people have different idea of being useful, uh, your being useful. So is there any kind of, how, how can you reconcile, if there is a difference between these two, how can you reconcile these differences? And also, um, I'm not sure, I don't know uh, uh, what is the established practice in this area, but do you uh, have any kind of ethical uh, commitment to consult them before you display these pictures? Uh, that's a good question. I understand the second question more than the first. Should I answer that first? No. I'll answer the second question. Um, No, that's, that's, that's the answer. Uh, I don't ask the subjects to edit my pictures for this exhibition, no. I mean, I think it, uh, uh, it's a great question and I think it goes to the heart of one of the problems. But at the same time, um, you know, the other end of the spectrum, it, would, it could be like a, the, a Daily Telegraph journalist asking an MP to edit his article on the expense claims. You know, I mean, that's just not... What's the point? Um, I think that there, there are many... There are some photographers that work... I mean, I have to say, first of all, that, um, you know, the, the, the relation... There is a relationship between me and the subject in these pictures. It's not like I'm in and out, you know, parachuted in, and then I go. You know, there's, there's, there's spent quite a long time with each of them, and I would uh, do portraits of them. And I mean, I think I've got to say, like this picture, it was performed to some extent by Vicky. You know, uh, I mean, there was a dialogue about making this picture, and there was a dialogue about the other. 300 pictures that I made of her so it's not so much about the editing you know I don't think I don't think that they, they there should necessarily be a role it would be an interesting exercise to see how they would edit the pictures themselves that would be really interesting but um, but I didn't do that no that's the honest answer to your question Well, yeah, I mean, that would just be stupid to to show an image that you knew they were they were really an against. I mean, unless there was a really good reason for showing it. Um, but no, my, my use to, the, the, you know, I think I was, I was very useful uh, to them in ways that I could never have dreamed about, really. I think I talked about those in the presentation, you know, about, you know, I would get prints done up for them of... Uh, the state of the neglect of the flats, you know, and I would, and I'd go and get prints done, and they would take them to the solicitors, and they would be used, um, as well as, you know, I mean, I, it, it, it's it's a bit cheesy, but family portraits, you know, or photographs that I would take of them, 
I mean, it's a negotiation. It's uh, you don't just go in and you know knock the door down, take the shots, and get the hell out of there. You know, it's these are relationships. They're fragile as well. They're relationships, you know, fragile. And it is. It's a weird. It's a weird thing being a document. It's a very strange thing because what are you doing? You know, you go into you you, you talk your way into these people's homes. You photograph them, and then you leave, and then you you have them shown in an exhibition or maybe a book cover. I mean, what's that about? I think it only really get, gets substance. It's only really worthwhile if there's more to it than just a cynical process of acquiring images. You know, you, there's much more to it than that, I think. Least of all, the fact that, you know, nobody's, no, nobody's listening to them. You know? I mean, there's that. I mean, it, you're seeing the pictures, but I've got hours and hours and hours of interviews that I did with them, and and it's what what to do with those interviews. I don't know, but um, you know, you're serving another function there than just. I mean, that's that's problematic, but I think it's true. You know, I, I, strangely enough, uh, to to tell you another anecdote is at the end of uh, I can't remember how I came across the link, but. It turns out that an artist was commissioned by Tate Modern to produce a piece of work about, I can't remember, maybe it was, maybe it was activism, I think it was activism. Uh, and, and if you Google uh, Alexander Court on the Tate Modern website, you'll find an hour interview with Vicky that the artist did uh, six months, I think, before I met Vicky. And I thought that was really interesting there. Two artists working on a similar theme, each finding their way to Vicky Laker. And, um, yeah, I don't know how to explain that. I just thought it was interesting that that Do you know if any of the people that you photographed came to the exhibition? Because I know you invited them. Yeah, no, no, I invited them. But Tina is um, now in Denmark. She was thrown out of Alexander Court and found work through a friend as an au pair in Denmark. And nobody knows where Vicky is, unfortunately. I invited the London Coalition Against Poverty and Open Dalston. But uh, as far as anybody from Open Dalston here? No. Uh, but no, they didn't come. Which is telling in itself, I think. But okay, I think that's what we've got time for. One thing I think we should just say, if people have not seen the exhibition, is that crucial to it was um, some reflections, really explanations or descriptions by the artist
Thank you.